This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Episode 150. Stuff we're here to talk about in this milestone episode might include... Ben Franklin, The Flash, Zeus, Tom Fury, Farlap, Karano Medicine, The Lockheed P-38, Mjolnir, The Blitzkrieg, Final Fantasy Thirteen, James Otis Jr., Garth Rands, Al Borak, Tampa Bay Hockey, or the static discharge between clouds and the Earth. Which is to say... Warning, none of the above actually referred to in this podcast. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. In Three Cheers for Master, the good news is that Master has conquered the world! Hurrah! The bad news is that now Master is depressed. Turns out he was not actually prepared for that. What is an evil overlord to do after he achieves his life's ambition? But that's on him. What about you? You're a lieutenant in Master's army, and when Master's bummed, it's the minions who suffer. The good news is that Master's gone away. The bad news is that Master's going to come back. The good news is you've got a plan. The bad news is, it's not a very good plan, because frankly, you're not all that smart. Your plan is this. You're going to coach all of Master's ravenous, homicidal, war-hungry minions to pile on top of each other into cheerleading towers. Then, when Master comes back, the minions in your pile will all wave their pom-poms and penance and hoot and holler and cheer. And maybe Master won't kill you. At least if your tower is best, maybe Master won't kill you. Because everyone else is building their own towers and trying to get Master not to kill them. You see how bad things are? It gets worse. The problem with the towers is that the minions in your tower all want to kill each other. And when the minions at the bottom of the tower kill each other, the minions above them fall. And when falling minions are heavy, that's what a capital H must be a game term, they kill the minions they land on. And hungry minions eat weak minions even when they're not feeling violent. And claustrophobic minions die whenever they're surrounded by other minions. And you can never tell which direction a ninja minion is going to attack. At least flying minions can remain above the fray. Unless someone stops a heavy minion on top of them, and they fall and get crushed. And die. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's in stores now. Look alert, minion! Master is coming! So, Ken, it is our 150th episode. Time for uh, back padding and commemorations and banners flying and confetti and all of that. That's right. Three years of Ken and Robin talking about stuff. The amount of stuff does not appreciably seem to have diminished over this time. It's fact, almost as though... the file I have of stuff merely uh, grows over time. Almost as though both stuff and Ken and Robin and talk expand to fit all available spaces. Ken more than Robin, uh, I have to say. Right. So we've uh, learned a lot this year. We've learned that uh, there were survivors in the tail section. We learned that if we try to escape the island... A uh, big white balloon will try to kill us. And uh, we learned that uh, when Angelina Jolie dropped by, that she's just regular folks, just like the rest of us. She was. Just just, just good people. And one heck of a Catan player. Right. And surprisingly well-informed about uh, Italian ufology. So that was good to know. Good for her. Anything else we learned before we get going with our habitual anniversary celebration? We learned that uh, Canada will revert to the mean and uh, uh, ruin our ratings by electing good old Steve Boring, who's just going to sit there and lie about your monorail or whatever it is. <laughs> but well, that, that uh, wasn't, that, kills that wasn't us. all of Canada. That, it that kills was Toronto. Us. Well, I mean, all right. As a Torontovian, yes. you're going to sit there and tell me Toronto isn't all of Canada? I'm legally, contractually not oh, allowed right, to Right, because you have to pretend Quebec really is important, right, because of the Confederation and stuff. I gotcha. Yes, yes. Okay. It's, it's our job 
yes. uh, to be the, you know, everybody else, uh, I'm, I'm promise I will stop the car. Uh, that's the role of Toronto in Ontario and the role of Ontario in Canada. So right. I could never suggest that logically, since Toronto is the best city in the world, it has to be the best city in Canada. But I, I would never say that second thing. Well, I, I, I'll tell you, it's the best city in Canada, just right off the top of, right off the bat. That's what I'll say. And I would say that uh, if a man is tired of Toronto, he is tired of Canada. That's what I will say. Uh, well, on that note, are you ready to call down some lightning? I am ready to literally call down the lightning. Okay, so we have our uh, stack of lightning round questions here. Ken is going to hit us with the first one. Uh, thank you for everybody who submitted a uh, lightning round question. Oh, and by the way, also thank you to uh, whoever uh, among you uh, was groovy enough to vote for us for an any. We're up for another any award this year as best podcast, so our fingers are crossed on that. Although, sadly, the voting period does not uh, line up well with our recording period, so by the time you're hearing this, all the votes have been cast, and we may even know who won. I'm, I'm not sure. When does this drop, Robin? During Gen Con or something? Let me check. Uh, no, it, it drops before Gen Con. So we won't know who won. So it will still be a matter of suspense. You will be in the same tizzy of anticipation that we are. And anyone who submitted a question, thank you very much for doing so. Uh, we will endeavor to get to as many questions as we can. And if we don't get to your question, either it will show up in a future episode, or I decided not to pose it. <laughs> and now get ready for the lightning, lightning round. Marshall Miller asks, what actor would best portray Gary Gygax in a biopic? Robin, what actor would best portray Gary Gygax in a biopic? We no longer have Philip Seymour Hoffman, so the role would go to Paul Giamatti. I would cast Paul Giamatti as Dave Arneson, actually, and I would cast... Uh, the young Rip Torn as Gary Gygax, and since I'm assuming we have to... Oh, you're using your time machine to cast Yeah, people. that's how I also greenlit a Gary Gygax biopic. Pay attention. <laughs> Lightning <laughs> Round! Baz Stevens asks, how often do you play at the same table? As each other? Um, once a year, it turns out, uh, at Dragon Meat, uh, Robin usually runs, although this last year, Rob Heinso ran a, uh, uh, usually a Pelgrain game for the assembled Pelgrinistas, among whom Robin and I are proud to be part of, uh, I think that was the burden of Baz's question. Yes. Uh, and there's, uh, there's uh, wine and sticky toffee pudding, uh, is supplied as well. Lightning, Lightning round! Josh Kablack asks, if you had to cover just one more film for blowing up the movies, which would you most want to write about, and what would the likely through line of your essay on that film be? Robin, I believe this is a Robin lightning round. Okay, so there are two answers to this question. Uh, if I were to pick another film that was uh, representative of things that I wanted to highlight, and blowing up the movies is my book of essays on films that lend inspiration to gaming in general, and Feng Shui 2 in particular. So for Feng Shui 2 purposes, I suppose that I would want to add a film that reflected the new revolution in uh, Korean cinema, in which South Korean movies are often better Hong Kong movies these days than Hong Kong movies are. And so I might put in something like uh, The Good, and The Bad, and The Weird, now, that almost doesn't require a through line because, and, and it's sort of one of a series, uh, there's a whole cycle of kind of spaghetti westerns set in 1930s Manchuria, and this is the sort of Korean entry in that. And it's already so feng shui, I don't know what I would <laughs> say about it yes. except to tell you to go see it at length and encourage people to watch it because I know there are a lot of people who are looking at blowing up the movies and 
using that as their filmography to catch up on things. I think maybe a good through line for uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Weird might be the uh, picaresque adventure, right? And sort of explain in a little more detail how to uh, structure that so that it doesn't seem like you're doing Rod of Seven Parts, even though you're, of course, doing Rod of Seven Parts. Or, right? or uh, physical uh, levels. Of the, there's sort of a whole up and down thing in that and how... Uh, you can use that in your action descriptions. Uh, the thing that would be dearest to my heart would be yet another John Woo movie. And there's already two John Woo movies in the book. There's already uh, The Killer and Hard Boiled. My favorite John Woo movie is actually Bullet in the Head, which is the darkest of his films in that it sends his trio of heroic bloodshed gangster buddies into the heart of the uh, Vietnam, Vietnam War. War. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so, uh, and the through line with that would be about uh, loyalty and uh, disloyalty within the player character group. Lightning Round! Eric Lully asks, what one change could GMs make to their GMing style to make their games more enjoyable? What one thing could players make to their play styles that would make the games they play in more enjoyable? Ken? I think I think the one change that uh, most GMs could make to their GMing style is to distance themselves a little bit from the story at the table and look at it more analytically. Because, uh, first of all, you're going to enjoy it more when you're surprised. And you can't be surprised if you're invested in the story and you have your part of it that you're pushing forward as an agenda. So lighten up on the agenda. You'll be surprised more often. And I think you'll you'll wind up maybe diagnosing problems at the table a little faster and diagnosing problems with the story a little faster than if you are like, but no, no, the wizard has to save the, 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 the orb or whatever it is. And, and you just say, well, I don't know who saves the orb. Maybe the orb doesn't get saved. And you start thinking, all right, if the orb doesn't get saved, maybe the lizard men come back. I don't know. That'd be fun. And you're, you're playing with story and actually doing the GM half of gaming. You're not just another player at the table happening to run the kobolds or happening to run uh, the old guy in the tavern, whatever it is. I think stepping back is 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 the big change. And then maybe it's not that big a change, but I think uh, the more you point in that direction, uh, you'll find some surprising fun there. Well, the thing I would say is the thing I always say, uh, which is for the GM, that you should pay attention to the other people at the table, read the room, get a sense of how engaged people are or not. Uh, these days, actually, player engagement are, if you will forgive a digression here on, on, lightning, on round. lightning Round. It's getting... Uh, both easier and harder to manage people's attention at the table insofar as everybody now has a phone or a phone and a tablet or uh, what have you. But we've also become better at uh, unobtrusively multitasking so that someone can be tweeting an event happening in the game and paying attention to what's going on and still be uh, engaged, but also have something that they can go to with when they're a little bit disengaged so that their boredom does not become quite so evident. So it is both easier and harder now to know and manage the attention of the people in the room, but that is still the number one skill you can have is paying attention to the rest of your group and over time knowing what it is that excites them that they would like that they would like to see more of, and uh, they will not always articulate that to you. And it's almost as if that's the thesis of Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering. Uh, for players... Uh, the thing that I would always say is, for, is bring more to the table. Take responsibility not only for your own fun, but remember that it's also your job to, to see that everybody else is entertained as well, that you're not there to get your thing that you want out of the game, and it's up to the GM to manage that entirely. You should be thinking about 
what Sanjeet likes in a game and try to come up with a way to not only steer the events toward the problem solving that you like, but the characterization that he likes. And parallel with that, you know, that may be kind of difficult, but at very least you can think of the game a little bit before you arrive so that you have some sort of an idea in mind of where, absent anybody else driving anything anywhere, that you could drive things. So you avoid that syndrome of the uh, GM, especially in a sort of a sandboxy style game, uh, saying, so what do you want to do this week? And then there's just a bunch of blank looks at the table because everybody was thinking about other things on their trip to the meeting place where you're going to play the game. So have something in mind that you want to do as a default. Don't try to force that into the game and make that make it your goal to make sure that happens, but have a fallback if everybody else was thinking about other stuff before they showed up. And I would say uh, my advice to players is your advice to GMs, learn to read the room, learn to take the emotional and uh, pacing temperature of your table. And as Robin says, take some responsibility, be part of everyone's fun. It's a team sport role playing. It is not a um, uh, bunch of solo activities that happen to involve the same bag of chips. Lightning Lightning round. Matt Jett asks, what was hashtag dead raccoon T.O. veiling out? Robin, an Ezoterra op happens in the uh, clean streets of Toronto. You're on the scene. Lay it out for us. Okay, so I guess first I'll have to explain what hashtag dead raccoon T.O. Really? Really? You think you have to explain? All right. There may may be one or two people who's not conversant. It was a hashtag, Robin. That means it's global news and changed the world. Well, for posterity, to the aliens who are going to be listening to this podcast in 300 years. From the planet uh, Pluto. Planet Pluto. (laughs) A a couple of weeks ago now, by the time you're hearing this, uh, gentle listeners and aliens from the future, a dead raccoon was spotted on a downtown sidewalk in Toronto. And, uh, well, one of the people who spotted the dead raccoon, I'm sure there were many of them who spotted them on their way to work, took a picture of it and then tweeted and uh, and also contacted Animal Control, who's uh, one of the things Animal Control does is when a wild animal dies right out on the sidewalk, they're supposed to come and shovel it up and take it off to, uh, you know, the raccoon rendering plant or wherever they go. <laughs> they go to a farm upstate, Robin. Right. And so... <laughs> they can run and play. Right. And so this person began to uh, tweet... The progress, or more specifically, lack thereof, of animal control and actually showing up with their raccoon shovel to remove the shovel from the sidewalk. And over the day, other people jumped in. The dead raccoon went viral. Yes. <laughs> and so this being people, Canada, it became national news. It became national news. Uh, even even a city councilor was tweeting it because, of course, it, tweeting that your uh, employees are uh, lackadaisical is a, always a, a big popularity-winning move for a, a politician. So people started building a makeshift cr- uh, shrine to the raccoon. And uh, people added, so someone added flowers, and someone else came up with a candle, and they gave the raccoon a name. And so all of this stuff went on for basically about, I think, eight to ten hours. Until someone finally... lost a mitten in Red Horse, and uh, the national media's attention moved. Yes. Um, now, of course, as uh, our questioner suggests, this was just a ploy to divert attention from something which would have threatened the membrane, which is uh, in the esoteric is the uh, reality barrier that protects us from the dimension of the uh, torture demons, the outer dark entities who want to come in and take over the world and devour and torture all of us. Um, And that is dependent on people feeling that their uh, universe 
uh, their, their moral universe is everything is ticking along fine and there aren't all these weird things going on causing cognitive dissonance. Well, this was an operative, actually. There was an attempt made, thankfully an unsuccessful attempt due to the efforts of the uh, agents of the Ordo Veritatis, the organization that fights the Esoterus, but there was an assassination attempt made on Whitey, the Trinity Bellwoods albino squirrel. And if we had lost Whitey, who is, uh, you know, our unofficial city mascot, uh, that would have been a cause of great cognitive distance throughout uh, the uh, GTA, throughout the greater Toronto area. And who knows what level of monstrosity could have come in uh, through the hole in reality that created. So uh, we had to make sure that, uh, or rather the Ordo Veritatis, I don't want to indicate that I am in any way affiliated with them, um, had to make sure that not only was uh, Whitey saved from uh, being devoured by an extra-dimensional demon, uh, but that nobody even knew that Whitey was in danger. And uh, if that doesn't explain it, then um, we've done our job. Lightning round! Kevin Culp asks, I'd love to know the game mechanic in any game that each of you has designed that you're proudest of. And Ken, I'm sure that uh, the answer... As with me, that your answer probably wavers over time and that you tend to be more pleased by the more recent uh, things that you have done. What What is the thing you are proudest of? I think still in terms of pure game mechanic, uh, the thing that I'm pr uh, proudest of is heat in Nice Black Agents. I think that that did everything that I wanted it to do. It... Uh, did what I think a really good game mechanic does, which is let other really good game designers build off of it. Uh, Will Heinmarch's manhunt rules and, um, uh, Gar Hanrahan's, uh, uh what, what he called hot lead, the, um, uh, running across boundaries, uh, rules in, uh, Nice Black Agents, both built off the heat mechanic really satisfactorily. And, and again, all of our, uh, listeners know what the heat mechanic is, but for the benefit of the, uh, aliens. Of the, of the aliens from Pluto, uh, the heat mechanic is the means by which if you do things out of genre, uh, such as, uh, set off huge explosions with no cover story or murder a bunch of people in plain sight, uh, you get hunted more thoroughly by the cops. It it's basic murder hobo control. Murder hobo control for Knights Black Agents. And the basic uh mechanic is half those little shields from Vice City and half plot stress from fate, uh that, that I believe Chris Birch invented for Star Blazer Adventures. Whoever invented plot stress though, that's where I took it. And whoever put those little um uh, cop shields in Vice City, that's also where I took it. So good for you both. Robin? So if you're gonna put uh, before I answer, um if you were going to put uh, heat in an F20 game, because of course that's uh, where mur murder hoboism is at its thickest. And assuming, of course, this would be for the benefit of people who do not want to fully embrace the murder hobo aesthetic, uh, how would you adapt that to uh, F20? I would actually probably have a, a a batch of heats because F20 needs to be baroque, um, and so <laughs> there would be there would be a heat for. Uh, you know, at least one for each of the four main alignments, right? For law, chaos, good, and evil. So that if you do things that attract the attention of the good God in a good aspected realm, you're going to be drawing, you know, uh, Chiran and angels and paladins coming to smite you. Whereas, um, if you do good things, then 
the good God is going to say, well, there we go. Everything's working fine. And conversely, if you do a bunch of good things in an evil realm, the evil uh, God will send you anti-paladins and stridges and what else it is, whatever else it is evil gods send. So that the heat becomes a thing that you have to sort of keep in mind as you move into the dark land so that actually, you know, oh, I'm going to heal that poor old woman becomes a choice with genuine consequences for you, not just, oh, I've um, used up one of my cure light wounds. Whoa, that was tough. Um, so I, I think that I would do that with heat. I would, I would have it be alignment or, you know, if you want to be real crazy deity, but I think that's too crazy alignment specific heat, uh, for various realms that you move into. That's what I would do to f 20 it. Right. Deity specific is only when you decide to do an entire 48,000 word supplement on this one, on rule. this one mechanic. So yeah. Paizo, call me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so my answer, and perhaps this is colored by the fact that I'm currently back running a drama system game, is I'm still pretty chuffed about the how the, the petitioner-granter uh, drama token structure works in drama system. And so that's the mechanic that boils down the basic dynamic of an interpersonal interaction scene, which you find in uh, drama and TV and movies and, and fiction, in which one person... Uh, want something from another character they care about and is emotionally invested in it, and they make a petition uh, and try to get it, and then they talk through the situation, and the grantor, the other person, the one that they're seeking the the grant from, either uh, grants the petition or denies it. And if you uh, deny the petition, the petitioner gets a drama token, which is a currency that you can spend in the game. And if you uh, grant it, if you give in to this other person, that you are then rewarded with a drama token. And the drama tokens start initially from a kitty, but then if the once they start to move around and play, if you have a drama token and shut down somebody's petition, you have to give them that drama token. And so that uh, creates a reminder that interesting drama happens uh, when you have a specific aim in the scene and you're not just sort of rambling around. Um, and more importantly, when you give in about half the time. So, uh, yeah, I think that that's a pretty great um, uh, methodology. Do you think that that is the sort of thing that you could adapt to make fencing a uh, or a courtship or some other uh, sort of uh, t tactical aspect of interaction in a uh, more uh, Baroque sort of game, but one that's fundamentally a procedural uh, game as opposed to fundamentally a, a dramatic game. Do you think that that petitioner grantor mechanic where there are incentives to losing uh, has a place in a more procedural uh, direction? Um, I think you'd sort of flip it on its head the way that I suggest in the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon essay in Blowing Up the Movies, which is that you could use a procedural two-person system like a duel or any other thing and, and use the procedural mechanics, but then... Uh, the winner of that duel would then uh, get an emotional concession from the loser. I'm not sure offhand how you'd do it the, the other way around, but I'm sure if I thought about it outside the confines of an anniversary episode. Without lightning, it, without all this lightning distracting lightning. us. Yes, exactly. I'm... And speaking of lightning round, lightning, lightning round! Ken Ringwald asks, what advice would you have for people starting out who are overwhelmed by the sheer number and variety of games available now? I would say to those people, steady on, people. Um, begin by deciding what it is you actually want to do at the table because you have a better chance of having a game that already does that already exist. Back in the day, we had to make D&D &D do everything and then 
I had to make Call of Cthulhu do everything, and it turns out Call of Cthulhu pretty much could do everything, so I was done. But a lot of other people <laughs> want to do other things. And so if what if what you want to play is a, is a game to emulate uh, the great westerns, you have Dogs in the Vineyard. You're done. Good for you. If what you want to play is a game of fast-paced spy versus vampire action, hey, look at that. Nice black agents. You're It's, it's right there for you. And so... I would say uh, begin by knowing the fun you want to have and then look to see if that fun is available. If you are just super new to the whole role-playing shebang, I think that starting with uh, Call of Cthulhu, Dungeons & Dragons, any of the classic uh, entry games, probably the new Star Wars game is pretty great. I, I've heard nothing but good things about it anyway. Um, so either if you're new to the hobby and want to see what it's about, uh, ideally play with someone who's done it before, just like everything else. You wouldn't, no, you know, five friends don't meet and say, let's figure out water skiing. That never happens either. So I would say, um, uh, start with a starter game if you're new to the game, or if you have a aesthetic experience already in mind, which you probably do being a child of this new exciting century, uh, go for the game that will provide it. Just like if you were buying a video game. Yeah. I would say that you don't have to worry. Don't worry about picking the perfect game. Uh, don't worry about even modulating, you know, what, you know, spending a lot of time researching, just get a general what it is that you're looking for. And there's probably 20 different games that you could have a good first experience with. And you could just essentially, you know, after you narrow them down and, and, you know, I think you want probably a newer edition of an old game or a new popular game that has a user base because those, both of those things suggest that what you have is going to be playable and it's not going to confront you with uh, some of the weird problems that we had to struggle through in the old days that uh, Ken uh, alludes to. But uh, this is definitely a question where you don't want to make the perfect decision the enemy of the perfectly good decision. Yes, much much like Patton, uh, decide now and that's the right decision. Yeah, d don't, don't sweat it. Uh, you don't have to pick the perfect thing, you just have to pick the good thing and the... Uh, uh, fun and joy of the role-playing format if you have the right uh, group of people uh, will come through and uh, there's never been more people on the internet willing to uh, give advice that's what people love to do on the uh, internet yes. and much of it is actually useful and helpful and kind uh, we should not let the uh, fact of the internet blind us to the fact that most of the people on it are perfectly willing to uh, offer you uh, fun tips and tricks to playing Fate or Savage Worlds or whatever kind of game it is you've picked. Right. And the thing is, ignore the people saying, oh, this sucks. Uh, if they're taking advantage of the opportunity to speak to you to uh, slag something, they're, they're probably not so interesting. But there's plenty of other people who will explain the game they love and why they love it. And then once you start playing that particular game, there's always a community to help you uh, through the uh, rough spots because there's always an unwritten corpus of uh, lore uh, that uh, underlies uh, the difference between a, a good game and a great game, but uh, people will be happy to write it for you in uh, comments or forums or, or, or what have you. So uh, jump in the pool, I think we're both saying. Yes. Lightning, Lightning round. round! Jim Crocker asks, will there still be game stores 10 years from now? 20? Heck, will there still be game stores next year? Well, Jim should know about next year because only he can look into his uh, ledgers and tell us. I suspect that given that there are three stores that still sell vinyl records in Chicago, there will still be game stores as long as there is face-to-face -face retail. Now, 
between the 3D revolution and uh, ever greater broadband connectivity, there may not be any kind of face-to-face stores. We may just push a button and get corned beef sandwiches and ski equipment and uh, Jessica Alba delivered right to our doors by uh, kindly robots. But I suspect, no, something that is a 10,000-year-old institution is not going to go quite so gently into that good night. And people will wind up paying a premium for face-to-face interactions regardless or you know maybe even getting a little bit of savings depending on exactly how the delivery model breaks out um i think game stores may become a place where you show up to the 3d printer you show up to the uh print on demand uh place and they're more like con- convenient shopping hubs for uh it's it's where the portal might show up i'm not that's more of a 20 years from now than a 10 years from now thing I, but i suspect retail uh, will be with us uh, for at least my foreseeable future. Robin, what do you think? Yeah, there's two uh, countervailing forces. One is that the margins and access to audience or uh, customers of a retail location are under pressure because people will go into the store, flip through the beautiful book, and then go home and order it on Amazon. And so you're as a retailer, you're competing with Amazon in a couple of ways. And you're also competing with uh, Kickstarters that are able to produce things that can't really sell through the three-tier system. So, for example, for the Feng Shui 2 Kickstarter, we had a range of accessories that we kind of looked into afterwards whether they would be viable at retail, but uh, given the retail price they would have to have if uh, Atlas is only getting 40% of their price uh, versus the 100% you get selling direct, and the difficulty that retail stores have always had with odd format items and accessories, it was deemed that, you know, we had to keep those things, the dice and the uh, shot counter, uh, as uh, special Kickstarter-only direct sales items. The jam screen, we've been able to sell jam screens through retail forever, and that will go through. But so there's always this, there's this kind of sideline that draws people away from stores and towards uh, Kickstarters, and that's going to be a challenge too. Uh, the other thing, though, is that the hobby is just growing like crazy. Um, and part of it is that we are achieving gender parity, and part of it is that uh, nerd uh, parents are training nerd kids. But um, And that nerd culture is ascendant in all of our other little nerd segments as well. You know, yeah, and, billion and, dollar adventure movies uh, tend to produce nerds, it turns out. And uh, gaming has, uh, as a consequence, is uh, growing. So even if you as a retailer, are uh, getting, uh, you know, less out of each potential customer, there are now more potential customers. The other thing that is going on is the move toward play spaces. Um, I can now, uh, within walking distance of me in Toronto, are four places that are game play locations. And so they run on the snack bar and table rental format. The first of them is called Snakes and Lattes, and it's literally just a couple of blocks from me. And and three or four years ago, or maybe longer, when I first passed that, uh, this one little uh, storefront that was going to have a gaming space slash cafe, I thought, oh, isn't that charming? They'll be out of business in six months. Well, uh, they've opened a a tavern also nearby called Snakes and Loggers, and now they're opening an even bigger location directly south, like across the street from the tavern, which as far as I know, they're not uh, closing. And there are other ones as well. And and so uh, now non-role-playing games are a more natural fit with those. Uh, it's easier to, you know, bring out the box of Catan and, and put it down than to 
uh, have people renting space to uh, do role-playing games. But I think the innovative uh, retailer who wants to uh, bring more people into the space uh, can do so. There's some barriers in that, uh, you know, the visual presentation of a bunch of people playing a role-playing game is not quite so appealing as the same group of people uh, playing Cthulhu Wars. But nonetheless, um, I think that is going to be a big part of the mix going forward is that uh, it, it will move, I think, more to a cafe that sells you time and will perfectly be willing to sell you the product that they also have shelves of. But that will be the, the main uh, thrust of things. And if it's gigantic in Toronto, uh, it can uh, spread elsewhere as well. Lightning round! Jeff Cars asks, what questions would you ask to a very new player slash GM? And I assume he means to a new player and to a new GM as to a new person who is doing both simultaneously. To that person, I would say, are you sure you want to do both simultaneously? <laughs> Robin, what questions are you going to ask to a very new player or GM? Uh, well, I'm trying to figure out what the uh, implied interaction here is in this scenario where uh, is it me, a game designer? It's like, because really, I, I wouldn't want to prime... I would think that any sort of question or priming on my part would be, uh, you know, establishing power over that other person and making them worry. I think it would be more like, hey, tell me about your fun. Yeah. It's, it's not even a question. It's like, I want to know what you're playing. I want to know what kind of fun you're having. I want to know, you know, you're new to the hobby. You're where I was, you know, on, in the time of the Misty Dinosaurs. Um, tell me about your character. Tell me about your game. Tell me about your campaign. Tell me what's going on, man. Right. And, and also, uh, how did you find out about it? What brought you in? Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, role-playing in particular has always been uh, communicated virally even before we talked about things being communicated virally. And now there's so many new ways to uh, learn about gaming uh, on the Internet and through the previously mentioned explosion of geek culture. So I am, if they're really young, I'm also interested in how did they get started and what was their entry point? Because, for example, you used to always be able to assume that it was almost, you know, 80% that anybody who started role-playing started with D&D. And even if you include Pathfinder as D&D for the purposes of that definition, it's not even true anymore, right? You might have started out as an anime fan and found an anime-style game, or you might have been uh, playing initially in a uh, free-form, forum-based narrative game, and then you found out about fate. There's so many different paths in uh, to gaming these days. And, and as I, also, as I mentioned, it might be, well, yeah, Dad taught me. Yeah. So uh, we just... Uh, we I'm, play Traveler because that's what Dad plays. Yes. And right. uh, it was weird when we died the first 16 times during character generation, but, you know... But we did that at Christmas, so yeah, that's all right. Um, Dad wouldn't steer us wrong. So uh, th th those would be my questions, really, rather than things that would put them on the spot. I would try to suck information out of them. Yeah, no, we welcome, them the, we welcome you to the hobby, very new players slash GMs. I, I, guess what, I guess one thing that I'm very interested in in particular is how many people really want a long character generation process now. Because certainly in my designs, I've been shortening and shortening the amount of time that it takes before you get playing. And uh, that means devaluing customization in favor of getting people started at the table. And uh, it would be uh, instructive to find out how many people would be much happier if they had an old school thing where they spent most of a four hour session just creating their characters. And then they got to 
walk down a corridor and see a rat. I, sus- I suspect that uh, breaks down by what age they are when they're starting playing. When you're when you're a uh, you know a, a teen or a preteen, and your every day is stretched out before you like a beautiful infinity of Samarkands, um, you have more uh, I think more more free attention to to to. Uh, fiddly bit your character into existence exactly the way you want them. And once you're, you know, married or you've got kids or you've got a job that, you know, works you and flies you around the country or whatever, you want to say, all right, I want to show up. I want to kill some Nazis. I want to get going. And so there may be a generational thing as well as whether or not you're a new player versus a pre-existing player, right? Uh, that is my assumption. Uh, but I would love to be able to test that assumption, at least with some anecdotal evidence. So that's the <laughs> question that I would ask. A new player slash GM. Lightning round! Our pal Sasha Bilton poses this one. Is there a role for multiple dice types in modern RPGs when designing from the ground up? Ken? Multiple polyhedrals, yay or nay, modern or ancient? Um, I think that uh, they can certainly have a role if one of your goals is to differentiate a given uh, random experience. And whether that is the way that Savage Worlds does, by turning them into your skill rating, and therefore providing you with a visceral sensation of improving your skill, that feeds uh, both uh, uh, mechanically and, I think, kinesthetically into the Savage Worlds play experience. I think that that is a perfectly modern, perfect perfectly contemporary game and those dice uh, have a role you can also have dice when you want to have a mathematical effect on the game like the die 12 in Shaval Hiri Roach by Jason Morningstar and that die 12 first of all it signals archaism as you have imputed because the game is about archaism but it also crushes all other dice at the table mathematically and that's the other thing you want to do with that die so yes I think there are if the die if the game is privileging um, uh, severable or uh, discernibly different interactions. Whereas if it's all, um, if, if everything that you do is uh, part of your same omnicompetent approach to kicking vampire butt, then a single die six is perfectly good. I try to uh, start off restricting myself to a particular die type, uh, often a D6, just because it is a constraint. And that uh, since I tend to try to do stripped down simple things these days, uh, that forces you to be simple. The decision to use polyhedrals uh, then implies a certain uh, gnarliness level. A uh, you know, if you put a gun on the table, you're going to use it. Well, the same is true with a d12. And so um, the choice to use polyhedrals is not wrong, but it suggests something about uh, what you're going to do with it. That it's going to be. Uh, more elaborate and uh, have all these different uh, working pieces and uh, that it's a different aesthetic experience. And yeah, but it's an aesthetic choice, not a question of uh, something being modern or not modern, the way that Sasha tendentiously frames the question. Right. It's it's like a, a zoom lens versus a telephoto lens. They uh, do different things. Uh, they go in and out of fashion in cinematography, but uh, it's not like the zoom lens is, is wrong and bad. Okay. Round. Uh, the next one is one that uh, I'm just going to pose to Ken. I don't really have an answer for, uh, but I bet you do, Ken. And the question comes from Alan Varney. Which contemporary writers who work with the Cthulhu mythos are bringing new insights and approaches? Well, it's an interesting question because, of course, one of the key things about the Cthulhu mythos is that you are not necessarily bringing a new insight. You are bringing the... Uh, Lovecraftian insight that if you are not bringing that insight, the insight of 
uh, nihilist uh, pessimism, then your mythos fiction, I think, in some ways is suspect, is questionable. But you could, in theory, bring a, a new insight, although, again, I suspect that your new insight was also already done by Henry Kuttner or um, uh, Robert E. Howard. But, yeah, I would say, by and large, um, if you were bringing the, the, the real uh, meat of that question comes in the new approach. And that's where you want to look at people who are already really good stylists and really write well, and then they take that good, those good style questions and that good writing, and then they write a Cthulhu Mythos story using it as opposed to simply aping or pastiching Lovecraft. And I would look at people like uh, Nick Mamatus. Um, I would look at a Katarina Sadia. I would look at this sort of new wave of uh, science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction, crime writers even. And I would say those guys, those guys, those folks are the ones who, when they write mythos, are doing something interesting with it. Laird Barron is, uh, he, he's a new approach in that his, uh, prose style is very, uh, very personal and you can always tell a Laird Barron story, but his insight and approach is really a throwback. I mean, it's, it's almost, uh, pre-Lovecraftian in a lot of ways. It goes back almost to sort of an M.R. Jamesian, um, uh, aesthetic. And I think that, you know, you couldn't ever call Laird Barron new, but he's also so individual that depending on how Alan wants to define the question, you could say Laird Barron just by being Laird Barron is a new approach. Uh, I think that those are the, those are the really interesting ones as opposed to just, oh, look, he's done a Lovecraft myth, uh, story, only it's about spies or he's done, oh, it's a Lovecraft story, only it's about, you know, I don't know, uh, anime fans or whatever it is. I think that is less interesting than taking an interesting prose style, taking a, a prose style that within itself contains insights and approaches and then writing a mythos story in that prose style. I think that that's vastly more interesting, which basically boils down to read interesting writers. But in the, in the old trad Lovecraftian, uh, way you're doing it, I think Pierre Comtoise is actually doing some interesting stuff just as intellectual, uh, playground stuff. I haven't, I've yet to be bored by one of his stories, which is not something that happens, uh, very often. And his prose style, while certainly serviceable, is by no means uh, a patch on a Katarina Sadius. Um, and so I, the reason I didn't want to answer that question is because I've uh, edited or, or overseen the editing of a couple of anthologies that I would point you to as the answers to that question. That would be Shotguns v. Cthulhu and uh, Letters to Lovecraft, both from Stoneskin Press. And I don't want to leave anybody out, so uh, I would uh, point people to those. In particular, uh, Letters to Lovecraft, which was edited by uh, Jesse Bullington, I think, is a really great survey of different people's approaches to the weird. And the concept there is that um, each of the writers, including myself, were asked to uh, find a little passage in the supernatural horror in literature essay and then respond to that little brief bit of analytical text and then a story that springboarded from those thoughts and uh, was nominated for a Shirley Jackson Award for Best Original Anthology and I'm uh, very proud of it as I could as only one can be by having someone else implement your idea more brilliantly than you could have done. Lightning Ullman Felius asks, how does your being Canadian affect your approach to game design and gaming in general? How has it affected Ken? And I suspect by that addendum that he is asking you, Robin, how your being Canadian affects your approach to game design and gaming in general. Asking you about your Canadianism, that would be a, a weird question indeed. Maybe it's one of those alternate history questions, like explain how, you know, yeah. um, uh, the Kaiser won World War One, that kind of thing. Um, I think there is probably a level of irony that runs as a thread through my uh, writing and even my uh, design work in terms of taking a step back and uh, trying to get the uh, the big picture, whether it's 
because they've been directly uh, inspired in a lot of ways by uh, the great uh, Canadian literary critic uh, Northrop Fry, or just the basic Canadian experience of uh, standing uh, next to craziness, uh, watching it uh, go on, and uh, developing a, a sense of uh, detached observation as kind of a, a default setting. I think you can find uh, that in a lot of my work from the uh, way guns are described in feng shui to just basic to uh you know my love of jack vance jack vance's you don't have to be canadian to be jack vance but it helps if you're going to appreciate him <laughs> yes because uh only jack vance can be jack vance and so if you can't you have to build an entire national culture based around being jack vance right and i think it's affected ken and basically in terms of a long-running series of running gags well that's part of it uh but also i think that all great creative uh, teams, uh, creative partnerships work best if the two partners are operating in different keys or in different registers, possibly even in different, uh, uh, entire, uh, metiers. You don't want two Maverick cops. You need your Maverick cop and your buy the book cop. No, exactly. You, you've got to have the, you've got to have the Danny Glover and the, um, uh, Mel Gibson. And I think that in, in this, uh, partnership that Robin and I have, uh, not just as a podcaster, but also as game designers, the sort of long running dialogue, I think that God forbid that anyone should have to do this, but, um, uh, surely graduate students of the future will have to, um, look at the way that the gumshoe games have informed each other. Look at the way that, you know, Esoterrorists and Fear Itself informed Trail of Cthulhu. Look at the way Trail of Cthulhu then informed uh, Mutant City Blues. Look at the way that uh, uh, Mutant City Blues and uh, Ashen Stars informed Knights Black Agents. If you look at that as an ongoing process of Ken and Robin talking about game design back and forth, I think you'll see that there's been a lot of places where I have brought sort of the mad crazy, the American, I don't know, chop it down, build something out of it. What the hell? Why are you standing around? And, and Robin's approach has been, well, I don't know. Let's, you know, let's all have a meeting and have some donuts and talk about it. And I, I think that that has produced a real, uh, collaborative, uh, partnership in a way that might not have been the same if Robin and I had both been sort of, uh, uh, you know, go at it, uh, hammer and tongs, balls to the wall, Patton type people. I think that one of us being Arthur Curry and one of us being Patton has really helped out. Uh, the next question comes from Lightning Lightning Round. Jeff Dunnett. Name your biggest regret as a game designer that thing you <laughs> wish you didn't implement. Uh, b- besides um, <laughs> picking the field of game design that uh, pays like uh, role playing instead of like computer games, I think that uh, in terms as a designer, now you could go and have eighty hour uh, weeks as any time you want. Any time I want. All right. Uh, even though even though you're. Uh, a zillion years old in uh, video game designer years. I'm sure yes. they would take you. Oh, no, in a heartbeat. And yes, that's what they want. Doughy fifty-year-old prima donnas. That's that's what they're craving in Silicon Valley. Um, no, I think my biggest regret as a game designer is that we never got to finish the natural course of um, uh, of, of the Star Trek games for Last Unicorn Games. That that got ab- aborted first by being bought by Wizard of the Coast and then having to re start everything over again at Decipher and then Decipher having their hilarious problems that prevented us from publishing uh, the rest of the Star Trek cycle. I think that that's sort of my career regret in that we had things that we wanted to do. We did some of them that never got published. I was looking forward to it. Certainly by the Decipher years, I was actually getting really good at game design, uh, much to my shock. And uh, 
um, there was some stuff that I kind of wanted to do with the rest of Star Trek that we never got to. So I guess that's my regret as a game designer. Um, to the extent I don't, I mean, part of the fun of being freelance and part of the fun of being me is that if I want to design something, I just go and design it. And eventually Simon usually, or failing that Hal publishes it and everything's great. So yeah, those are my, but my regret is, yeah, we didn't get to really finish Star Trek correctly. Robin? I think if you ask uh, this in, in private over beer, basically any freelancer will list the times they got stiff in the order <laughs> Working of for how those much jerks. they got stiff yeah. for, and will uh, tell you uh, what uh, telltale signs they uh, did or didn't spot or will look for in the future to avoid getting stiffed again. Um, and just as my favorite thing is colored by how recent it is the same is true with uh, regrets because i've been lucky enough to uh, on multiple occasions to get to go back and redo things with the benefit of hindsight and so uh, the uh, primary error of hero wars was that it over assumed how much uh, the player base intuitively understood about storytelling and therefore didn't spend enough time explaining not the rules, but how to use the rules to get the effect desired by them. Um, and that was something I was able to rectify in Hero Quest 2. Um, likewise, in uh, Feng Shui 2, it wasn't a matter of uh, rectifying the uh, the vision or the play style that it, the, the pros suggested, because that was all in place, but just removing things that uh, didn't work and replacing them with things uh, that did. But uh, inevitably, uh, no matter how many people you have look at a uh, rules text document, there's going to be something, often uh, a vestigial reference to a previous iteration of the rules that exists outside of its main chapter in the book that you're going to miss. And so now there are some errors of that type in Feng Shui 2 that have to be errated. And although there's really no shame in errata because, you know, even... Uh, the new D&D will wind up with a ton of errata and they have a way huger editorial staff uh, or even, you know, uh, their staff is smaller now than it was, say, in the heyday of three or, or four. But everybody always winds up with errata. But nonetheless, it, it annoys you. It sticks in the cross. So it's a small issue. But, for example, the uh, Feng Shui went to print with the vehicle stats in the adventure not matching the final version of vehicle stats as described in the vehicle chapter. And so uh, that is uh, annoying, but uh, it's not the sort of thing that I would actually consider a regret or to uh, beat myself up about, because uh, what would the point of that be? Yeah. Uh, but in terms of like a major, huge system that I, uh, you know, that I think was a, a total uh, botch that I therefore regret, I, I'm afraid I don't have that level of self-laceration. Lightning round! Uh, Rob McDougall asks, if gaming didn't exist, what would you do instead? Um, if gaming didn't exist, what would I do instead? I would uh, probably wind up, I, I hope I would wind up reading more. I suspect with TV getting so good, thanks to the ability of computer editing to let you tell more than one story at a time, um, I would probably wind up watching more TV. Uh, hopefully watch as many movies as I do, if not more. I would just do more uh, passive creativity because there would not be interactive creativity in that way. Maybe in a magical pretend version of this world, I might uh, pay more attention to the legitimate stage. Although Robin, of course, went from that to gaming. So perhaps you would warn me off in this alternate universe. You would appear... Uh, with the goatee even, so I would know that you were from the proper timeline. Now, I assume this question means, what would we do for a living? Oh, well, um, I guess. And 
you know, something boring, whatever. Right. It's, it's been cleverly framed so that uh, we can just say, well, we'd be still writers in a different field. Yes, right. Um, now, if the question is if you couldn't work in a creative field at all, the thing that comes to mind that suits someone who is analytical and detail-oriented and good at poking holes in things and uh, good at constructing narratives would be a lawyer. A lawyer. Um, I think uh, I would probably, if we're asking in a world where I don't have a creative job, uh, in the uh, sit-down-with-no-pants-on uh, sense of creative, I think I would uh, uh, work the way that I dress and I would be a bartender. Lightning, Lightning round! Roger Edge asks, what underrepresented in gaming genre would you personally like to see more of? Ignoring money, interest beyond your own, and such, or don't? Robin? I, I would love to see a, another uh, Western game come along and really nail it, but that's uh, definitely uh, something that uh, would have nothing to do with interests beyond my own. Uh, there are sub-sub-genres that would be fun. It would be fun to see a sort of a, a Quatermass style, uh, uh, you know, science fiction uh, investigation modern day game, which uh, is eminently doable, probably. Yeah. That's not even, we could sell a bunch of those. We could, we could, we could sell that to Simon right now. Yep. Um, I want to see romance. I, I can't believe that this is the most ridiculously retrograde art form in the world. If you can imagine a world in which, uh, there had been no romantic movies until 1940. You are imagining the world of role-playing games as it sits. Poor Emily Kerboss and uh, Elizabeth Sampat can't do all the damn work, people. We need to see more romance in games. We need to see the fundamental story of someone meeting another someone and hearts calling across the vasty deep and maybe a sword fight or two. But the whole point is, are they going to get married at the end? And the answer should be yes, because it's a proper uh, story. So yeah, I think I want to see more romance in games. I want to see... Uh, it is an element in regular games, and I want to see games that are about it in the same way that uh, so much of the great literature and uh, film and plays and everything else, every other damn art form, including sculpture, is about romance. And yet role-playing games somehow can't quite get up the nerve to ask the cute game across the street out. Right. And I think that's definitely a question of interest. And it's a question at the player level in terms of comfort zone in that, because uh, even in a drama system, which is perfectly open to having romantic relationships in it, and if you choose to do them, becomes much stronger. Um, players are very reluctant to uh, establish uh, romantic relationships between player characters, because as players, they are uncomfortable uh, flirting, A, in general, and B, through their characters with other people that they are not themselves interested in flirting with in real life. I think we just need more, uh, like in Scandinavia, we more people from drama club need to start role-playing and then we'll fix that. Yes. I, I think you definitely, the problem there is not a design problem, but it's an absence of demand at the player level to do it. Well, it's also a design problem. Lightning round. Lightning round. Uh, Stephen King, uh, that's with a V, not a PH says, Name one book, and only one, that influenced your approach to storytelling. Because otherwise you'd, we'd think that he was just trolling and wanted us to say on writing. But, in fact, I'm going to say uh, the one book and only one that influenced my approach to storytelling is Tim Power's Last Call, which is the book that told me what I'd been trying to do since forever. And I have, uh, certainly in my, in my table games, uh, my players like to say that every game I run is either a Tim Powers or Warren Ellis, and it's their job to figure out which, uh, before I do. And so I think that, uh, Tim Powers' Last Call is, uh, the, if I'm naming one book and only one, that's the one book I'm gonna name. Also because I know Robin will say Anatomy of Criticism. Uh, Robin will say Anatomy of 
Criticism by Northrop Fry. Lightning round! Paul Snow asks, what was the impact of Ars Magica? And I would say, um, uh, besides creating the entire White Wolf uh, game engine sort of accidentally and on the back end, um, I would say that uh, the other sort of impact of Ars Magica was to uh, fling over the, the table of game balance and dance in its ruins. The notion that every character has to be able to do the exact same thing at the game uh, table wasn't even true when Gygax and Arneson invented uh, class systems because they were intending the characters to balance out over a long period of play. But I think Ars Magica really grasped the nettle and said, this is a game about magicians. They are the important people. Let us move from there. And I think we see a lot more uh, narratively focused as well as rules focused games come out of Ars Magica. I think that that is one of the big uh, things that Ars Magica did in addition to being a really great game and providing a test bed for a lot of really great game designers. Right. And also the idea of troop style play is not just an innovation in game balance, but an innovation in the you can play a bunch of different characters in a the same game and have a bunch of different parallel narratives running uh, back and forth. And you can have games where different people are playing different people from their portfolios, or you can have an all grog session or an all magician session. And uh, that is something that uh, you still don't see a, a lot of, but is an enormous contribution. Yeah. I, I wish that that was the impact of Ars Magica, certainly, but it is sadly undervalued by uh, the design community and it should be more the impact of Ars Magica, certainly. Um, and also just that it created the, the community created, it created a place for, uh, super medieval history buffs to all get together and uh, <laughs> hammer at minutia. Yes, if, if if people are not yelling you about your Latin in any other game forum, uh, thank Ars Magica because they all went there. They all went there. Lightning, Lightning round! round! Daniel Dover asks, if you could teach one thing about studying history, what would it be? Uh, I don't know if I have anything to teach people about studying history, but can you are a historian by uh, avocation and vocation, if not by uh, paycheck? Uh, so how would you answer that question? I would answer that there are two ways to study history, and the, and the faster you learn which way you are, the happier you're going to be. The, the way there is the uh, you know to uh, uh, repurpose Isaiah Berlin's fox and hedgehog. There is the fox, the guy who runs along the whole length of history and likes to put things into order and figure out long chain cause and event, long chain patterns. Uh, figure out that uh, you know, oh look, Sumeria. Uh, the, 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 um, the balance of, of kingdoms in the, in the Middle Bronze Age is basically the same as the international system under the, under the Davos, uh, elite now. Look at that. Look at those parallels. And you run along the whole span of history, dropping things in, whether you may. The hedgehog is the guy who drills down into one thing that they find interesting and keeps drilling. And as they dig their burrow out, it expands. But they're the people who are like, they're really into the Civil War. They want to know all about the Civil War. They want to know about the Civil War. By learning about the Civil War, they learn about Maximilian in France. And by learning about Maximilian, or Maximilian in Mexico. By learning about Maximilian in Mexico, they learn about Napoleon III in France. By learning about Napoleon III, they've learned about the Franco-Prussian War. Look at that. Now we've got two whole wars, two different continents. And then it just sort of spreads out from there. You learn about uh, the Civil War. You learn about slavery. You learn about the institution of slavery. You learn about the African slave trade. Now you've learned about the Kingdom of Congo. Now you've learned about uh, pirates. You've learned about all kinds of stuff. But it all dug out from that one first tunnel that you sank into 1863's muddy battlefields. And once you figure out what kind kind of a history student you are, you will figure out what will make you happier to study. Because if you take that poor hedgehog and you drop him down in the middle bronze age, he's going to say, there are no, there's 
no minier balls. I'm so messed up. I hate you so much. And if you take the, the, the run back and forth guy and you make him drill down endlessly into Russian dynastic history, he's going to get bored. He's going to get, um, uh, disconnected. So learn what kind of student of history you are. Study history that way. Um, uh, then that will, that will solve you, save you a lot of, uh, tsuris, uh, moving on. Lightning round! Alex Jeffries asks, How would you make an RPG centered on the concepts of biological evolution interesting? An RPG about biological evolution? I would say that you would then have to recapitulate the evolutionary process within the character, and that the character progression becomes the biological evolution. And so, as your character needs to... It would be more Lamarckian than Darwinian, of course, because you'd wind up retaining learned traits, but... um, uh, Or, uh, unless you're playing your entire clade over the period of time in some, you know, maybe a new planet, and you're you're dropped down and you're playing a super-fast generational role-playing, you know, Pendragon in space, that kind of thing. I think that would sort of be the structure that you begin with uh making it interesting is kind of up to the up to the story not so much the game although making gameplay interesting is always still our job as designers to make things interesting yeah, that's fair um i, I would answer uh, alex's question by saying i would not attempt to do that uh because um role-playing games are about people and narratives and evolution annoyingly enough are about Neither, or is about <laughs> Yes. People who think evolution is about narrative cause all the problems in the world. Look it up. Yes. Uh, and they cause you to misunderstand evolution. Yes. That, uh, even <laughs> Which is also books, a problem. <laughs> yes. Even about books by evolutionists, you constantly see them slipping into things that personify uh, the process of evolution. That add a teleology to it. Yes. Uh, that uh, uh, even people who know better, or they... Um, uh, personify species as if they are making decisions to evolve mm-hmm. and you cannot overlay uh, intention or narrative on this incredibly uh, complex and deeply random process and there's a uh, there is sort of a school of evolution that tries to uh, kind of make it a secular uh, myth and uh, that is a uh, uh, beside the point uh and uh, B, causes you to misunderstand evolution. So and is as unsatisfactory uh, as most secular myths turn out to be. Or, or at least as un- unnecessary. And uh, more importantly, causes you to fundamentally misunderstand the thing it's supposed to explain. <laughs> so the last format I would possibly think of for explaining evolution uh, is a uh, role-playing game. Now, a board game, perhaps? Uh, in which well, We you have are... one. It's Orzupa. It's a really good one. Yeah, there you go. Lightning Round! Vincent Nguyen Van asks, what Fiji creature would you fake in a game or in life and why? Um, I would uh, make a Fiji manticore just because it would be fun. I think manticores are awesome. Um, I think getting the human face would be a little creepy, though. I, now, now that I say that out loud, um, I guess, though, you could use a monkey like they do for Fiji mermaids. You could uh, have a, a friendly uh, gorilla or something as, as your manticore face. Um, yeah, I'm going to make a Fiji manticore. Because it would be great fun, and you could put it in your yard and terrify people. That's why. Two words. Leam your shark. Leam your shark. Lightning, Lightning round. Chris Larrick asks, uh, at great detail, if one were wishing to enter the freelance writing world and wanted, among other things, to get known as an interesting person with interesting and potentially bizarre or exciting ideas, if Chris Larrick wants to become Ken Height, what kind of blog post length structure <laughs> and so forth seems to you most effective in reaching the rapid skimming online audience? I would say that you begin by looking at blogs that already do well uh, uh, blogs of ideas that do well, which is a much smaller subset, and copy them. I think that uh, it's more important 
than length, structure, and so forth is regularity. You have to post uh, at least three times a week, probably more often than that, just so that people know to see you. You have to link to other blogs so that you build uh, on the back of other people's community. You have to give generously uh, attention and credit to other people so that they will give you attention and credit back. And then it's just all down to your writing style and ability to think interestingly. And if you can't do that, then um, uh, you probably don't want to be writing three, four, five times a, a week anyway. Robin? Uh, I would say four to 600 words. I would say you want to explore one idea, introduce your idea immediately, uh, explore it and get out. Uh, the big flaw these days of a lot of blog writing is that uh, if people are looking for clicks and click-throughs, that uh, the opposite of newspaper writing is occurring, which is uh, burying the lead is now seen as a virtue. So you quite often have to scan through 800 words of dumb verbiage to get to the thing promised by the headline of the post. Right. The one uh, cool trick that will amaze you. Right. So get to the one cool trick. Right. Uh, people uh, will more likely, those click sites may have gotten their impressions, but th nobody kept reading that article. So be short and snappy. And um, uh, if you want to do long form, do one like every month or so, and then keep referring back to it from the other ones so that it becomes sort of uh, the canon for people who are reading your site. And it also uh, helps to impress people who are looking at uh, you for other projects because they will say, oh, look, it's something that's longer than 400 words. There's something more there. Even if it doesn't get as many uh, hits or full reads, it establishes a, a sort of a, a footprint in, in the space. That's what I would say. Right. And uh, you might also want to consider if you have a long essay, break it into component ideas and do each idea as a short one. And then you may want to link them up later. Right. Uh, because that thing gives you another chance of a hit. However, I do not necessarily think that having a cool blog is going to bring yourself to the attention of the people who you want to notice you these days that because uh, I assume that the purpose of developing this reputation is then to go on to bigger and better things, i.e. get published. Um, so and if it's if the publishing you want to do is in role playing form, I think you're much better served by jumping into a community for a game that you like, whose publisher pays attention to that community and posting your cool little things there so that you know that uh, whoever it is uh, sees uh, that you love their game and are promoting their game and supporting their game and can write for your game. That's going to be a much quicker route than the uh, route of trying to build up a popular blog these days. And, and, I, would, again, if and I would say if you're trying to um, uh, write for money, uh, then... You start by writing uh, uh, nonfiction pieces for whoever will pay you, and then you use those clips to get better gigs, and those clips to get better gigs, and so forth and so on, in the grand tradition. And there are still places out there that will pay for content, and there are still better places than those that will pay more once they've seen that you could write for those first places. Uh, don't get uh, lured into writing for exposure, except as a way to just sort of flex your muscles and whatnot, and provide a landing point for people who are searching on your name uh, so that they can hire you. Lightning, Lightning round. round! Cam Banks, you can tell Cam is already a professional writer because his question is extraordinarily short. Are GM screens a menace? Ken? No! Robin? Uh, I say no as well. Lightning, Lightning round. round! Lehman Kessler asks, what could have saved West End Games? I'm not sure I feel at liberty to say. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what... Well, I think we both know the yeah, story. Yeah, and I, I would say different management. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps management. all the way at the top. Lightning, Lightning round. round! 
Uh, Rick Dakin asks, who's the most sinister Freemason in history? Not evil, but happened to be a Mason. Sinister because he was a Mason. Uh, can Masons are often shrouded in a sinister legend that is imputed to them to others, who is the most genuinely evil Mason? Well, uh, aside from the Masons that murdered that poor guy in New York and caused the formation of the anti-Masonic party, who I guess were the only Masons ever in history who were evil because they were Masons, because they murdered that guy for revealing Mason secrets, um, most Masons aren't actually sinister for being Masons because Masonry is designed to not be sinister. It's designed to be middle class and acceptable. And if there's anything unsinisterer than that, I have never found it in my life of middle class acceptability. But Albert Pike, um, who is uh, a guy who started his own Masonic order because he sort of um, became the uh, commander of the Scottish Rite's Southern Jurisdiction, was part of the big uh, split in Masonry uh, during the Civil War that um, uh, when people wanted to be less bourgeois and uh, middle class and more uh, planter aristocracy and beat people up Masons, he was on that side. He was a uh, prominent uh, a member of the of Ku Klux Klan. He was a Confederate general. He was a bad dude, and he would be the most sinister Mason ever. And if he didn't like me blackening his reputation, he shouldn't have written a bunch of anti-Catholic paranoid conspiracy theory. So screw you, Albert Pike, you Confederate son of a gun. Lightning Lightning round! Eric Nudon asks, adventure format and GM prep. Are we moving towards games that explicitly tell you how to do these? And is it a good thing? I do this. Ergo, it is a good thing. I wouldn't do it if it was a bad idea, would I? No, of course Um, not. So, uh, a lot of my focus uh, in Gumshoe and in uh, now in Feng Shui too is uh, you know having learned the aforementioned about a lesson about Hero Quest too that people do need a lot more guidance than I initially assumed about constructing uh, stories and particularly in constructing stories that go with the game that you're trying to tell. Since then, I've always tried to present a default adventure format that requires you to come up with all of the elements for a baseline fun experience in that game. And so all of the gumshoe uh, books in the GM section present a slightly different structure uh, and uh, enabling you to put a uh, adventure together. Uh, same with Feng Shui too. So there's uh, an adventure construction workbook in that now. And I think it's uh, really the way to go. We sort of, uh, if you start off with D&D, you're kind of spoiled in that its structure is rock solid and also kind of invisible to you. you build it out of rooms and encounters. But uh, I think that uh, showing you how to create a baseline adventure in whatever game you're writing is uh, a key, uh, perhaps the key element in any new role-playing game design. I think that your answer contains within it the seeds of my answer, um, uh, which is to question the moving toward part. Uh, as we talked earlier, adding teleology to things is... Uh, It'll, it'll get on you if you start letting people do it. Um, if we are moving toward what D&D was doing literally from the jump, then sure, yes, we're moving back toward what we've always been doing in 80% of the hobby, which is explicitly telling you how to build out adventures and do GM prep. Uh, look at the old Dungeon Master's Guide, your good old first edition AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. There's nothing in it but adventure format and GM prep, and it's all there and laid out and beautiful. And what I did, for example, in Day After Ragnarok was simply go back and do that over again. Uh, random encounter tables and um, uh, story beats. And uh, the thing that I brought to it was story beats, I guess. But yeah, um, I think it is a good thing because uh, as Robin says, you should never assume that in technical writing, your audience already knows how to do the thing you're explaining to them. So yeah, um, I think that it's always good to 
let people uh, know what it is that they need to do to make your game fun. And if they don't have the tools to do it already in their box, give them the tools. The worst thing you're going to be doing is showing them how you use a hammer, even if they're already a trained hammerer. Uh, now, for our final question, uh, we've got a whole bunch of new uh, questions still in the hopper, so we'll have an abundance of them next time we come back to the lightning round. Uh, but I thought we would uh, end on a final note in which I pose a question to Ken. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, that question is, so uh, as you know, Ken, uh, one of my favorite Hammer films, perhaps my favorite Hammer film, is uh, The Devil Rides Out. And so now that... Uh, Dennis Wheatley, who had not previously uh, read, is uh, widely available in ebook form. I thought I would uh, read some Duc de Richelieu novels. So uh, the first one I read was the first novel in the series of uh, the Duc de Richelieu, who for the uh, aliens who are uh, unaware of this is uh, his uh, occult uh problem-solving hero with uh, his uh, band of uh, assistants, his occult uh, doc savage, if, if you were. Um, except it turns out that uh, of, I think, about a dozen in the Duc de Rochelot series, only three of them are actually occult-oriented ones, and the others are all espionage or crime thrillers. And so the first one, The Forbidden Territory, is just about him uh, and his buddies getting trapped in uh, Stalin's Soviet Union in the late 30s and getting out. And so I was somewhat disappointed that this was not the version, <laughs> the, the genre that I had, had been seeking and hoping to, uh, to recapitulate. Um, and so I, uh, and I'd already seen the movie of The Devil Rides Out, so I didn't just uh, want to read the book. So there's a subgroup of books within the book, uh, within the series, that are the Black Magic series. So there's three occult books among the dozen or so uh thrillers involving uh, the Duke de Richelieu. And so I read the second of those, just finished it last night, called Strange Conflict. Strange Conflict, And yes. never has a, a novel been better titled, <laughs> yes. because this uh. is just astoundingly crazy pants. Um, so it's written during 1941, and as is Wheatley's want, uh, just the way the esoterists do it, uh, he was writing about real-life current events and mixing them up with the occult craziness. So this has the Duc de Richelieu uh, going up against the Nazi occultist who is capturing all of the uh, information about their uh, supply line shipping and torpedoing the boats. And it turns out that the Duc de Richelieu is a master of astral projection. And uh, the many of the uh, fights in this book occur on the astral plane. And uh, so... I, I so enjoy you stumbling on Dennis Wheatley's pure, unadulterated powers as an adult. Because yes. it's so much funnier than me stumbling on it as a, a teenager. <laughs> yes. D Dennis Wheatley never has the thought, is this a good idea? No. He's, no. he's busy and he drinks. <laughs> yeah. He, he has an idea and he writes it down. <laughs> and so, uh, and the astral combat uh, sections are just like utterly, you know, out of a, you know, crazy pants comic book. And uh, of course, uh, on the scale of how racist it is, the answer is super racist. Super racist because the bad guys in Haiti. No. Yes. <laughs> Spoilers. And, 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 and Yes, when you find out it's going to Haiti, it's like, oh, no, I'm already halfway into it, and I guess my white privilege allows me to see this from an ironic perspective. Oh, gee. And that's not even the most... 
racist passages. Uh, <laughs> it's the ones extolling the virtue of British blood, the best blood in the world, and how they're really the worst thing about the uh, devastation done to the shipping lines is that all these young men with their great British blood are being killed and they won't be able to perpetuate the British race. But anyway, that's not my question. <laughs> no, so, no, this is this is uh, this is lightning uh, uh, with a lot of thunder beforehand. Right. So, <laughs> how many of these have you read, Ken? How many uh, uh, Doctor Richlow books? Um, of the Wheatleys, I have only read the occult Doctor Richlow. I have never read any okay. of his uh, other ones. So this podcast is going to end on an unanswered question because my question is: when he goes back to having standard thriller adventures. Does he then refer to the fact that he can astrally project? <laughs> uh, because in this one, he astrally projects uh, over the North Atlantic and drops in on all these different ships and stuff. And that would have come in really handy when you were imprisoned in the Soviet Union, Dr. Lushlow, yeah. if you'd use your powers then. which it, And it doesn't establish that he suddenly gains the powers. He's had them all along because he's a... Uh, uh, basically, he's a Madame Blavatsky-style secret master who's evolved through multiple generations and the uh, the uh, cosmology turns out to be uh, uh, basically uh, Hinduism with a layer of cultural Christianity uh, lightly salted over top. But, yep. uh, very, very, very theosophist. Yeah. So if, if you're not uh, upset by things that are super racist and uh, want to read something entirely nuts, uh, Strange Conflict uh, would be the thing. But I guess uh, someone uh, braver and with more patience than I will have to uh, let us know if the genre resets every time it's not an occult novel and he or whether he, you know, just mentions in passing that, well, it'd be great to solve this problem with astral projection, but uh, the stars are not right. Had had I um, known even a, a year ago that uh, Code Word Golden Fleece takes place in Romania, I, I would probably have read it for uh, uh, Dracula Dossier and I would be able to tell you if he astrally projects out of Romania or not. Um, but I suspect that Dr. Richelieu's powers come on and off. If you're looking for a more, well, what do I want to say? A, a more, um, consistent, uh, astrally projecting or telepathic spy. <laughs> uh, the guy you want is, uh, Lanny Budd, who is the spy written by Upton Sinclair, right? And the fact that Upton Sinclair is writing spy novels is, is crazy already. But it would be the opposite politics of Dennis Wheatley. It would be Wheatley. the opposite politics of Dennis Wheatley. Um, although there's still racism in it because, uh, when Lanning Budd, his, um, uh, his spy character is in Nazi Germany, uh, at, in a cabaret, an illegal sort of undergroundy cabaret, um, he's thinking, well, the only good thing the Nazis ever did was exterminating jazz music. So good for you, Upton Sinclair, you jerk, you socialist monster. But anyway, Upton Sinclair's, uh, spy Lanning Budd is, uh, telepathic. He is in communion with uh, white light power, but it's sort of downplayed a little bit. It's like, well, he, he only does it when it's really important to report to President Roosevelt. He doesn't just astrally project like a big, you know, right winger. Um, <laughs> but these are, these are stories that are, you know, torn from the headlines. He was writing them during uh, World War II and then right after World War II. And, uh, Lanning Bud, uh, moves around the world hunting out, uh, secret fascists because his, uh, father was a arms merchant. And so he has immediate entree into evil right-wing circles all over the world. And, and then, his guitar kills fascists. And then as a good uh, socialist, he uh, gets to hang out with Mao and uh, learn about his beautiful eyes and things like that. So I would recommend 
uh, reading the Lanning Bud series, and then you will you will have a more consistent um, uh, uh, psychic spy. What connotation of the word recommend are you using here? I enjoy them because, first of all, I mean Sinclair is no slouch as a novelist. Uh, they are crazily interesting as being spy novels written, you know, a year or two after the events that they depict. We we think of spy novels now as being sort of either written about some misty uh, before time about the Cold War, about World War II. Very few spy novels are ripped from the headlines in the same way that Bud does. And uh, being written right in the in the period of Hitler and Stalin, we have a little more ability to look back and say, oh, no, that was, uh, no, you probably got that wrong. Um, then we do about stuff that's written right now about, you know, ISIS or Al-Qaeda or something. And um, so I, I think that they're, they're very enjoyable. Obviously, um, you know, when Lanning Bud is telling us all about how socialism is the inevitable wave of the future, it's almost as hilarious as when Dr. Richelieu is weeping great copious tears about uh, British blood going to the bottom of the Atlantic. Um, but this is, uh, you pay your money and you take your choice. And I think that uh, uh, Lanning Bud is, is good stuff to read. It is, however, I don't think available in ebook form yet. And uh, because whoever has the rights still believes that they are going to sell a million billion copies in incredibly difficult to find hardback. So, Or uh, perhaps just wants to publish the uh, respectable <laughs> portion of Upton Sinclair's output. Um, well, that was, a, although delightful, a fair ago, uh, was inconclusive. So instead, I'm going to throw in a final lightning round bonus question. Lightning, lightning round, round bonus, bonus question! question. Uh, John McMullen asks, which RPG monster should get a week modeled after Shark Week? Uh, oh, let's see. Well, I think that to make it, uh, uh I, th I think saying Dragon Week is cheating, right? Because every week is Dragon Week, right? It's like Children's Day. Um, I think that if you're going to devote a week to it, that's an RPG monster. Um, and similar with Cthulhu Week, in fairness. Uh, obviously, I'd love to have Cthulhu Week, but again, every week is Cthulhu Week. But for RPG monsters, I think that uh, modeled after Shark Week, then it kind of has to be Boulette Week, doesn't it? Because it's modeled after a shark. Robin? Uh, well, it depends on how uh, you define RPG monster. Because, uh, contrary to your point, I would say uh, Shark Week is not about picking the obscure indie fish of the sea. It's about picking the obvious fish that everybody's interested in. So on that grounds, I would make it Dragon Week. Dragon because week. there's enough material to do week after week after week. About and plenty week. of dragon attacks. Yes. Uh, however, if it has to be an RPG monster, I still think the marquee monster that was invented for the RPG format is still the Beholder. Uh, Beholder week would be a good week. Uh, yeah, you could have, it would have to be 10 days long, one one for each eye. Yeah, but, uh, right. You know, that's how, how Beholders play it. But Beholders believe in metric weeks. That's, exactly. That's why they're evil. Right. They've, they've been driven mad by trying to decimalize the calendar. Mm -hmm. And I think on that conclusive question, we can declare our 150th anniversary episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff to a close. Join us next week when we resume our normal format. But until then, remember to embrace the... Stuff I've once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Celebrate this milestone episode by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Jason Detman and Ross Ireland. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or Storm God by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>